You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. As we dive into these three more chapters in 2 Kings, specifically 8, 9, and 10, I want you to look at a picture with me. And ask yourself, have you ever felt this way? I think you probably have, haven't you? That sometimes it seems like justice just creeps along, doesn't it? Like if there is any judgment coming, it's slow in coming. As I thought about this picture and some of the things we're going to see in chapters 8 through 10 of 2 Kings, my mind went to a story when I was a senior in high school. I've told you before, my dad was the principal of our high school when I was a senior. And something occurred in the beginning months of my senior year. It didn't involve me, but something occurred with some folks in our class. And, and I think most of us were thinking there would be some punishment as a result And it didn't seem like there was, at least not quickly. But as the school year began to end, that punishment did take place. I don't know the details. Uh, My dad's never shared them. I don't need to know them. I didn't know them then. But I remember thinking, um, as I graduated and entered college that very first summer, I remember thinking, you know, my dad's patience didn't mean he was going to reverse his decision, but it did display his patience. I didn't see that in the moment, but reflecting on that, I began to realize my dad wasn't really interested in changing his mind about what should happen, but he was interested in giving them lots of opportunities to repent, to change. I think if you're a parent, you can even relate to that, can't you? Like, you know in your mind what probably has to happen in regards to punishment, consequences, but there are times in which you kind of give this long window, don't you? Like, let's just see if we can see some repentance, some change. It's not that you're afraid to implement judgment, but you want to give this thing a lot of room. As I've heard before, you want to give someone a lot of rope, maybe? (laughs) Because your prayer is that there'd be some change, some, some repentance, Kind of keep that picture in mind. Keep these scenarios in mind as we look at these three chapters, 2 Kings 8, 9, and 10, because through a collection of stories that center on Ahab's wife and family, I hope that today you will adjust how you respond when you think justice is moving slowly. Perhaps when you wonder if it's even coming. That here's what I hope you'll see, that when, that when you see God's judgment apparently delayed, you won't jump to denying it, but instead you'll see his patience on display. In fact, can you read that with me? This is really the take-home truth we're going to embrace today and, and see surface in our three chapters. Read it with me, would you? When you see God's judgment delayed, don't jump to denying it but instead see his patience 
on display. I want us to kind of investigate this truth from these three chapters through two mental pictures today, all right? The primary ones from the Old Testament, these three chapters, 2 Kings 8 through 10. And then I want to see a companion picture from the New Testament. So let's get this plane in the air, can we? 2 Kings chapters 8 through 10. Let me give you a quick summary of them. Can I do that? Chapter 8 really deals with uh, Ahab's continuing influence. This is probably from 12 to 14 years ago, by the way, that Ahab had a judgment pronounced on him, uh, and then he died in battle. But yet his influence and his um, impact in a negative way is continuing. This is going to be seen in chapter 8, especially the last half. Chapter 9 is the sudden entrance of Jehu, a radically speedy kind of king who was used by God to mete out this judgment. And in chapter 10, we see really the, the uh, inevitable and yet patient judgment of God. I'd, in fact, I'd say that in the latter part of 9 and most of 10, we see the intersection of Ahab's continuing influence and Jehu's sudden entrance. Those intersect in chapter 10, latter part of 9. And we see, oh, God did keep his word. But we're left with this question, why did he wait so long? Let's answer that this morning, shall we? Now, as we get into chapter 8, you're going to find that there are a number of names, kings, kingdoms, locations that will throw you for a loop. In fact, i got to be honest with you, sometimes these things get the best of me. Are you that way at times? Like, I'm not sure how to pronounce them. I'm not sure if it's the same guy that we looked at last time. Is he in the north or the south? And where is he? And, and so this, is not, this doesn't come easy to me, and it's probably not to you. So we can all just relax a little bit. We don't have to be history experts, all right? In fact, you're going to see today that there are two kings with the exact same name, but they're spelled different at times, and they're in different kingdoms. So we made this chart to help you with this, all right? Our guys put this together. <laughs> you want to get a quick snapshot of it, because what it does do is it puts together for you all the kings and their timelines and their kingdoms and which prophets interacted with them. Now, it looks more confusing there, but you can take it and kind of enlarge it. Uh, if you want a PDF of it, go to our website on the main page where our sermons are. There will be a link there right on that this week's sermon. I have this chart. It is actually helpful because it gives you the larger view, and you can kind of zero in on some places and understand the names the timelines, and so you don't have to have it all down pat, okay? This can be some mentally heavy lifting, and I know I'm, I struggle at times to get it all uh, kind of, uh, you know, in my mind. I can hardly say the president unless I sing that song. Are you with me on that? Of our own country, much less all these kings of these two kingdoms. So everybody just relax. We'll get through this today, and I think when we're done, it won't be the fact that you have more clarity about history that will be encouraging, but it will be the fact that you have greater clarity about doctrine. You see, I really don't mind if you get the kings messed, uh, messed up or out of order. That's not a big deal. But I don't want you to get something about God out of order. So this morning, we're going to make sure that we tackle that. Amen? Second Kings chapter 8. Let's look at Ahab's continuing influence by analyzing a few verses beginning in verse 16. The Bible says, 2 Kings 8, verse 16, In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, 
Then Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. We're already there, aren't we? Now understand something here. In the Hebrew language, and you know some of your Bibles will say this, Joram and Jehoram are actually the same name. So you have kings in the north and south at this current time with the same name. You have Joram in the north, who was the son of Ahab, and then you have Jehoram in the south, the son of Jehoshaphat. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, verse 17 says, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. But notice verse 18. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, so he was mimicking, copying the northern kingdom. Why? As the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Now watch this. That means in the north you had Ahab's son, whose name was Joram or Jehoram. And then in the south you had Ahab's son-in-law, who was Jehoram or Joram. In fact, if you look at verse 20, Jehoram of the south is actually called Joram in that verse. So are you already confused? Possibly so, right? Refer to the chart, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying we have two kings now, and they're both extending the lineage of Ahab, one as a son-in-law and one as a son. I'll explain to you the danger of this in a moment. I just want you to kind of see some of the historical facts. Now, as Jehoram in the south continued his eight-year reign, Edom revolted, other nations pulled away, and in the course of those battles, Jehoram of the south was killed. But Joram, or Jehoram in the north, was still reigning. So let's pick it up in verse 25. This is now seven, eight years later. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, same guy mentioned in verse 16, when he was reigning in, this, in his twelfth year, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So here you have the son-in-law's son beginning to reign, which means it's the nephew of the king in the north. If you're with me, let me hear your heads. Excellent. Okay, we're, we're together. We have uncle in the north, nephew in the south. But are they all connected to Ahab? Yes. So his, his influence is still spreading. It says here that Ahaziah was 22 when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, so that would be Jehoram's wife. She's described in verse 26 as a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Who was Omri? He was Ahab's father. So just keep this in mind. He's simply, in this, in this portion, the author is in a literary fashion just connecting everything back to Ahab's lineage, showing the continuing decadent influence of this king, not only in the northern kingdom where we would expect it, but now in the southern kingdom. Now watch what happens in verse 28. The nephew goes with the uncle to make war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And here's what I think is going on. I need you to listen very carefully. It appears that there's, there's a, a unifying of the two kingdoms that is not healthy or good. This is probably the one time in the divided kingdom period in which there is the closest opportunity for them to humanly come back together. The people in charge are related. 
they both have adopted the wicked practices of Ahab and his insightful, and I use that with a C there, his wife who incited this, Jezebel. So th- th- this is just throughout both kingdoms. Idolatrous practices, Baal worship. Here's what I think is, is going on. Satan is trying to destroy the line of David and the tribe of Judah in the southern kingdom. Why? Because if he can destroy the line of David and the tribe of Judah, guess what is, from a human perspective, extinct? The promise of the Messiah. You follow that? And if Satan can stop the line through which the Messiah comes, then there is no Redeemer, there's no Savior. So that's what's in play here behind the scenes. Let's see if we can bring to extinction anything in the line of David or the tribe of Judah. And so leadership gets in place through wicked means. They're trying to unify. They're going to go to war against Syria. Perhaps they'll win against Syria. This is all happening. They're convening now in verse 28 uh, in Ramoth-Gilead. In this battle, King Joram of the north is wounded, and he's brought to Jezreel to be healed. You see that in verse, what, 29? While he's at Jezreel getting medical attention, it says in the end of that verse that Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, he went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So you've got uncle and nephew convening together after a, a, a not a very victorious battle. They think they're getting together to figure out how to keep the kingdoms united. But you know what? God is actually bringing them to one geographic location so he can meet out his inevitable judgment. Enter Jehu of chapter 9. Now, Jehu was appointed king in almost a secretive, very quick fashion. You'll see this in the beginning of 9. Not even through Elisha, but through one of the sons of the prophets that was around Elisha. He sends him on a mission, says, go anoint him as king. He does. Jehu accepts it gladly. And he begins this almost rampage-like quest to uh, fulfill the reason for his reign. You say, what was the reason for his reign? Well, look with me at chapter 9. Oh, about verse 7. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male. This, I think, is the core reason for Jehu's kingship. He's the instrument of God to bring judgment upon the lineage and the house of Ahab. And that's exactly what he does. He takes care of Ahaziah and Joram in the middle of chapter 9. We come to the end of chapter 9. Let's begin reading in verse 30. I would warn you with kids, this is somewhat graphic. 9.30 says that when he came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head. She looked out the window and we're not sure if that means she was trying to seduce him to come to her side like a prostitute. If it means she was being proud and saying, you can't touch me. Or if she was pretending perhaps to um, maybe be somewhat humble. We don't know exactly. But her words are somewhat of a taunting tease. Verse 31, as he entered the gate, she said, is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? 
and he lifted up his face to the window and he said, who is on my side? Who? At that point, two or three of the eunuchs looked out at him and he said, throw her down. Undoubtedly, they thought to themselves, do I stay on Jezebel's side and lose or do I join Jehu's side, the newly appointed king, and win? And they chose a few more days of life, it looks like, so they threw her down. Some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. So it looks like Jehu and his men, when she fell to her death, then trampled over her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. the, The sense of the text is he felt like he did his job, so to speak. But then he realized, you know, she was a queen. She deserved some type of maybe honorable burial. And so he kind of had this thought like, well, let's at least bury her. When he sent men out to retrieve her corpse, it says they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. If you're wondering where this was spoken, go back to 1 Kings chapter 21 around verse 23. You'll find this exact prophecy spelled out by God over Ahab and his house. By the way, that was 12 to 14 years prior to this event. That's a long time to wait for justice. But God did speak it. Elijah did prophesy, and it did come true. Here's what the Lord has spoke. Then, he says, in the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say this is Jezebel. And this is exactly what happened in this encounter. As graphic as it is, God's word came true, though it took, at least from from human perspective, a long time. I imagine many of you were like, man, this is taking forever. This seems to be so slow. Let me pause here and just say a few words about chapters 8 and 9 here for a second. Because I think it's interesting. When you watch chapter 8 and 9 unfold, you, you, you see that the tentacles, what I call the constantly creeping tentacles of man's sin, They just keep reaching further and further into the kingdom, don't they? Over these 12 to 14 years between when God announced his judgment and then he fulfilled it, and Ahab just keeps spreading his tentacles into the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. It reminds me of this church. Listen very carefully. Sin is never content. And it will keep coming at you, disguised and divisive, until it ultimately destroys you. Sin's never content to say, oh, okay, I'll just, I've got this little portion, I'll keep it. Sin has far-reaching, constantly creeping tentacles. It's true nationally and it's true personally. But as 9 closes and 10 opens up, here's what we find. That though the constantly creeping tentacles of sin are evident, And they show us that sin's never content. The counterintuitive timing of God's judgment indicates he is actually very consistently patient. He's not cowardly powerless. 
Now, would you admit this with me, that if you were living in Judah, the southern kingdom, or Israel, the northern kingdom, and you had heard through Elijah that Ahab's entire line would be destroyed, but you keep following year after year, it's five years, now it's seven, it's eight, it's ten years, and Ahab's not just uh, extending his influence, though he's dead, his son-in-law's in the south, his son's in the north, and then his nephew takes over. You're thinking this, like, man... I thought God said he was going to take care of Ahab. So what's, what, what gives God? What's up with that? Would you admit that within the remnant, there may have been folks who are wondering, wow, did you forget what you said? No, God didn't. He didn't forget. In fact, we even used the word delayed, but he didn't delay. It seemed like his delay to us as judges, but the truth is, God is just extending a window of opportunity for people to repent. He's showing and displaying his incredible patience. You see, the waiting period wasn't a lack of God's control, but it was a display of God's patience. Judgment did eventually fall, though, as the end of 9 shows. Look at chapter 10. Here the judgment comes to its ultimate conclusion, as verse 1 says, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Now, just a word about this word sons, a linguistic word. Sometimes it does mean exact sons. Sometimes it means males in their lineage. In fact, in the Hebrew language, often when they say so-and-so is son of so-and-so, it could mean son or grandson. It could mean relative. This is true for the daughters as well. So some of your translations are going to word some of these things differently. I think the point is to notice this, that God's prediction, God's promise that he would take out all of Ahab's lineage and descendants is actually happening. And so as chapter 10 unfolds, Jehu, in a sort of tricking kind of manner, brings all those related to Ahab, executes them, destroys all of the Baal worship throughout Israel, and Israel... And ultimately, Judah are rid of Ahab's influence. God's word came true. Did it take, in our perspective, a long time? Yes. Why? Because God is a patient and long-suffering God. And when you see his judgment taking a long time, don't think, oh, he's not going to judge. Like our take-home truth says, don't go to denying it instead. See it as God's patience on display. To wrap up chapter 10, just notice this. It says that Jehu did wipe out Baal from Israel, but yet he did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam. This is verse 29 of chapter 10. So Jehu really wasn't that great of a king after all. I think he was an evil king used by God to carry out a previous prophecy of judgment. Now, I won't go into all that that means for our current situation, not only in our country, but across the world. But make no mistake, church, God can use anyone at any time for any of his purposes. And as he does, and as we wonder, man, what's going on? Didn't God say, remember, don't deny his coming judgment. Just see his patience on display. Let me focus your attention to just two simple verses within these three chapters that I think give the greatest sense 
of God's patience on display in these narratives, this collection of stories. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 19. I'm trying to get you to focus on the fact that that God's patience is on display. It's not any kind of lack of fulfillment or a delay in judgment as we see it. God's just long-suffering and patient beyond what we can even understand. Look what he said here in chapter 8, verse 19, 2 Kings. This is when the kingdoms were kind of, from a human perspective, unifying. They were uh, coming together. They thought it was good on the surface, but the truth is, I believe it was Satan's attempt to try to extinct the line of David and the tribe of Judah. When God could have rightly and justly extinguished both kingdoms, look what he says in verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Isn't that beautiful? You see God's faithfulness and patience and long-suffering all in this verse. When God could have rightly said, I'm done with both of you, he knew he had made a promise. He was faithful to that, and he was patient in, even, in, in bringing that about. Look at 10, verse 10, which in my personal opinion, this is the verse of the three chapters. I mean, all of them are wonderful, but this verse just, man, it elevates. Look what it says. This is Jehu speaking, in fact. He says, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. God's word wasn't falling like a leaf or like a feather. I mean, picture this. It's fall. You watch the leaves and they kind of gradually float down, right? Your yard's filled with these things. Or you watch a feather fall and it takes its time, but eventually it just doesn't stay afloat. God's word is not like a leaf or a feather that over a long period of time gradually falls to the ground and is never true. That's not God's word. Nothing of God's word will fall to the earth, it's solid. What the psalmist say? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And so I, I need to make sure that we grasp God's word, not as something that, oh, he said it, I don't see it happening within my lifetime, within these 10 years, within this 30 minutes, so I guess it's not true. <laughs> that's, that's the wrong perspective. None of God's word will fall to the earth. None of his word will fail. He's just taking a different perspective, and we'll use our terms, a longer time fulfilling it. Why? Because God is a patient, long-suffering God beyond what you could ever comprehend. I mean, when you reach the end of your patience, we've not even tapped into God's patience yet. So church, do you see the the real take-home truth kind of emerging now? From these narratives and these three chapters, this collection of stories all about Ahab's family, his lineage, that, that, when, that when you see God's judgment apparently delayed, do not jump to denying it. 
Instead, see his patience on display. Now, that's the first Old Testament picture I want you to see. As we land the plane, I want you to see one more picture. It's in the New Testament. One that speaks to where we are, but shows the very same trait of God. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at these two verses. Verses 8 and 9. You'll notice the first word in 2 Peter 3, 8 is the word, what is it? But. So he's transitioning from something. In the first seven verses, he talks about the coming day of the Lord, i.e., God's coming judgment. And he says that because it is not here yet, the day of the Lord has not yet arrived, some are scoffing. This is in the first century. We're now in the 21st century. So if they're scoffing then, they're scoffing now. Some are scoffing saying, you know what? He didn't mean what he said. It's not going to happen. He's fallen asleep or he forgot. On the heels of that, Peter writes this. But do not overlook this one. Say the next word with me. Fact. Beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. In other words, God is not like you and me, especially in regards to time. He's not bound by it. This is a phrase that really speaks to his patience, his long-suffering, and more theologically, to his transcendence. You and I see time in days, weeks, months, years, and we are bound by it. We, we use it as parameters, but God doesn't even think that way. He doesn't wear a watch. He's not tracking his steps. He's not seeing if, he's got, if he has his activity circles completed today. None of that happens with God, okay? God is outside of time. So what you think takes a long time is nothing to God. Then he says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. What's the next phrase? As some count slowness. Do some people see God as slow? Some people see God as slow wrongfully, and I'm going to say something to you, listen very carefully. I think some of us see God as slow, even with good intentions. It's the only thing we can understand. Our finite minds don't have a word to describe someone who's outside of time and operates on a spectrum and a perspective that's, that's incomprehensible to us. So we say, even with good intentions, not trying to malign God, we say, man, it seems like God's taking a long time. And actually, to us, it actually is taking a long time. Does that make sense? So I would say to you, there are those who wrongfully say God is slow, and there are those who, in some sense, from a right heart, see God as slow, like, man, what is up? But God is not slow, as some of us count slowness. Why? Because he's outside of time. God doesn't even think in terms of fast or slow. God just is all the time. Past, present, future. God is and he's going to fulfill his promise. So he's not slow, but what is he? Oh, I love this phrase. Verse 9. He is patient toward you. Say it with me. 
patient toward me. Now, look at the third word there. You see, it's one thing to look at 2 Kings and say, oh, God's patient towards them. But here, he's saying God is patient toward whom? You. Do you realize that the very same God who took 12 to 14 years to bring about his judgment upon Ahab and was no doubt misinterpreted and questioned by those within both kingdoms, perhaps even the remnant, he wasn't slow. He was just very patient to them. You realize that same God is the God today who is holding back his day of judgment when Jesus will come and judge both the living and the dead. He's holding that back. Why? Not because he's asleep, drops his to-do list, forgot, or is senile. For one reason, God is patient toward you. That's miraculous. That's unbelievable. Why is he patient? Here's how the passage closes. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, every day that you wake up is another day of opportunity for repentance. Isn't that beautiful? When God could rightfully and justly say to the Son, the day of the Lord is here, go get my people. Yet, when every day occurs and the day of the Lord does not happen, it's because he's patient and giving opportunity for people to In that time, yes, the tentacles of evil continue to reach long and far. Just watch the news, read the blogs, catch the different feeds on your social media platforms. You'll see the tentacles of evil reach long and far every single day. And sometimes it's frustrating, saddening, discouraging, isn't it? And do you cry as I do sometimes? How long, O oh Lord? Do you say that? Sure you do. But God has not forgotten. He's not asleep. He didn't go back on his word. He is simply being the patient God he is and giving people opportunities to repent. Remember this, church. That yes, the tentacles of evil, they do reach long and far. They constantly creep. But they never reach so far that it removes those involved from either God's patient judgment on one hand or his powerful salvation on the other. In fact, listen very carefully. Every single person will experience one or the other. When God's judgment comes, you will either experience his patient judgment or you'll ex you would have experienced earlier his Powerful salvation. No one escapes one of these two options. His patience one day will end and he will come 
and judge. At that point, you don't want to be left thinking, okay, I think I'm ready to decide now. He's actually giving us those moments now in his gracious patience and long-suffering to turn to him in repentance so that when his day does come, you have reached repentance. You say, Todd, well, how do I avail myself to power for salvation? And how can I avoid this judgment? As patient as it may be, it's inevitable. How can I avoid that? You trust the one who bore the full judgment of God already. You see, I was reminded of something, even just this morning, in praying through this, that there's a lot of graphic details in 2 Kings 8 through 10. Would you agree with that? And there's some graphic detail in 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord and the earth and the result of that. That's, that's, you got graphic situations on both ends, but something far more graphic occurred right in the middle. It's called the cross. And the cross is the most graphic, horrendous, and yet beautiful place where God took full judgment on sin for all who believe. For three hours, Jesus Christ hung naked on a cross, forsaken by God the Father. And in those three hours, the Bible says he became sin for us. So that we, the real sinners, might receive the righteousness of God. You see, the graphic judgment isn't really 2 Kings 8 through 10. It's really not 2 Peter 3. As graphic as they are, the graphic judgment is in the Gospels where God took out every bit of his wrath against sin for his church on his son. In fact, one of the writers in a commentary about 2 Kings, says this, and I like the way he said it. He said, there is a paradox here that goes deep into the nature of the biblical God and into what a terrible, violent price must be paid in order to restore peace and harmony with the sinful people. And I have good news for you, church. God did not extract that from you. Now, if you choose not to repent, if you choose to see God's patience on display and take advantage of it wrongfully and ignore him and think, you know what, he won't judge us. It's been so many thousands of years. He's forgotten. He's asleep. I'll take my chances. Actually, God will come one day. He will judge the earth. None of his words will fall to the earth. He will be completely vindicated and accurate and true. And at that point, you will then, as an unbeliever, pay for your sin. And because we are finite, but God's holiness is infinite, you will pay for your sin infinitely, eternally in hell. You'll never match up or measure up to the, to, the, to the wrath of God against sin because you're human. So you'll pay endlessly, eternally, and yet you'll never fill up the cup of God's wrath against your sin. Because Jesus was holy and God. And could perfectly fill up the wrath of God against sin. He bore your sin for you. And now all who believe in Jesus are considered righteous. And are no longer under condemnation. This is the remarkable gift of God 
to people through Jesus Christ. This is the remarkable patience of God on display that he would actually wait 1,500, 1,700, 2,000 plus years since the death of his son and more that he would actually wait to return so that all could reach repentance. So I think if you're a Christian here, your heart right now is pumped up. You are stoked that God is so patient and reached to you and found you. Amen. But if you are not a Christian, if you are still trampling underfoot God's incredible patience and long-suffering, I must warn you, God's judgment is sure. But I must also urge you, he is patient. And so be grateful for his patience. Respond to it by believing in Jesus Christ as the only way to be right with God. Trust him, the one who took your place and bore God's wrath for you. So how does that look, Todd? How does someone trust God? Well, it's a posture of the heart, first of all. I say this a lot, but I think it's important. It's not a matter of signing a card. It's not because you raised your hand. It's not because you're in this building. It's not because your parents have a good last name. It's not because you gave, you know, some money at the box. None of those things affect your eternal destiny. All right? Trusting God is a posture of the heart in which we repent and believe. We repent of believing the wrong things and we believe the right things, which is namely that Jesus Christ was God's son and that he died and was raised by God the Father. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and confesses that Jesus is God and that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. Now, now, saved from what? Saved from God's judgment. And why does God give us day after day of hearing the gospel message and opportunity after opportunity to repent? Because he's patient. He's long-suffering. I don't know where you are spiritually, but if you have been turning your nose to God's patience, if you've been snubbing his long-suffering nature and character, I appeal to you, snub the Lord no more. Turn to God, the patient God, whose patience is on display every single day, and trust him. Would you pray with me, please? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.